The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, in the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them signed in. Thank you, Karis. If you're an adult and you want to go to children's church and not listen to me, there's the kids on the side in the back. We are in the middle, uh, kind of actually the beginning. It was launched last week of our new sermon series on Romans 8. And we, it's entitled uh, Sanity by the Savior. Sanity by the Savior. And what we're looking at is in light of Easter, the empty tomb, he has, he has risen. And so what does that mean for you? What does a a risen king mean for you day in and day out about what you do, about who you are, about what you can't make sense of? Sanity by the Savior. And that's because in uh, Romans 7, Paul says, I can't make sense of myself. I don't do what I'm supposed to do. What I do, I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am. And then we see Romans 8 plunged into. And so it's what's called the best chapter in the Bible and uh, so we'll look at this morning uh, at Romans 8, 5 to 11, 5 to 11. Uh, when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp about an hour that way. And uh, every five or six days, we had off nights. We had time to kind of get away for some R&R and uh, go eat some food that wasn't all that good for you, but, but we got away. And so all the day long, knowing it was your kind of team, your cohorts, off night, you would talk, hey, where are we going to go? What, what are we going to eat tonight? Um, are we going to meet up with those, that camp uh, of girls, uh, counselors? What are we going to do? And so um, all the day, this anticipation and excitement, and uh, without fail, we'd walk, begin walking to the parking lot, to our cars, finalizing plans. And once we set our plans and put them in stone, without fail, one friend, Tate Johnson, would come in and say, we're going to Sonic, we're going to talk to all the girls, and we're going to burn it down. Okay, Tate. This deep excitement about what we just talked about took a turn that got oh so strange. And that's what verses 5 to 11 are. Verses 1 to 4, hey, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of all that Jesus has done. And then Paul 
takes this really weird turn really fast and says about this spirit stuff and this flesh stuff and, and how the spirit's in you and uh, it's going to give life to your mortal bodies and then it's going to actually uh, do more than that too. It, just, it gets strange fast. And Marnie this week, as we kind of leaned into the strangeness of it, uh, she kind of gave a framing question. And the framing question is, starting at verse 5 into the rest of the chapter, what does the uncondemned life look like? What we see in Romans 8, if, if verses 1 to 4 talk about no condemnation, we can assume 5 and onward is what the uncondemned life looks like. And that's exactly it. And so if Jesus brings us sanity, this morning we see there's sanity in the good life. Sanity in the good life. And we'll see it in two points. Not three, two. The model of the good life and the manner of the good life. The model and the manner. But as we see Paul and what he wrote about the Spirit, let's ask that very same Spirit to meet us in this room on the south side of Chattanooga because he's a living Spirit of the living God. So let's pray. Lord, we are called to be your people, and your people are supposed to be marked with uh, glorifying the risen Savior and being expectant of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in this room, we certainly come in with expectations. We can be excited or uh, expectant about, Lord, what are you going to do right now, today? I'm so glad I'm here. And we could be also uh, expectant of um, nothing. Nothing will happen. That we could actually expect our wounds and our scars and our stories to be uh, outdo and outweigh the good things you have for us. And so with all these expectations mentioned and others, would your Holy Spirit meet us, minister to us? Because all of us have a heavy burden that we long to know your easy yoke more and more of. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. And so do your work, we pray, Spirit. All because the King we celebrated two weeks ago at Easter is indeed out of the tomb. And may we follow him out also. We pray in his name. Amen. So first, the model of the good life. The model of the good life. And when I say model, I mean there's nothing personal in the first half of this kind of section. It's all about Paul saying those, 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 verses 5 to 8. He never says you, he says those. He gives this paradigm, this example, the model of the good life. And he lets us see it and says in verse 5 and on. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, Set the mind on the flesh is death, but set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we see this dynamic, this tense dynamic between spirit and flesh. Spirit and flesh, and they're both after the same thing. That's why there's tension. What are they after? They're after you. You have walked 
in this room and walked out of this room and you walk everywhere with a target on your back. Sorry. But, but the spirit and the flesh are after you because you're worth something. We have to start there. You're worth something. Therefore, the spirit and the flesh and this cosmic battle is after you. So let's kind of have some bearings. Let's frame the house of what the spirit and the flesh is because they're kind of ethereal words, ethereal thoughts. What's the spirit? It's easy to think that the spirit is uh, Ed Rooney in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the principal. And his one job is to make sure you are kept in line and you are Ferris Bueller. You're trying to get away with as much as you can, skirt responsibility and make sure you're not caught. And the spirit's job is not to hamper you and it's not to catch you. It's not even to condemn you because again, there's therefore now no condemnation. What is the spirit's job? The spirit's job is to make much of Jesus. And we'll talk about that later on. But his one job is saying the father authored redemption, the son accomplished it. And as the spirit, the spirit is to say, I'm attesting to it what the Son has done, I'm applying it to you. Because of the Spirit, you have what Jesus has purchased for you, which is why Jesus said, it's good that I go to his disciples so that you can have the Spirit. And it's good that we have the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that is the third member of the Trinity, gets us the things that have been purchased, applies it to us. That's the Spirit. So what's the flesh? The flesh. Now, when we hear the flesh, we think of the naughty things kind of the vile things, the things that uh, are, are, are filled with shame, the flesh. And Paul does give really concrete examples of what the flesh looks like in our life and, and kind of lists them out in other places of the Bible. But, but one quick word is that it doesn't mean less than those things, but actually it does mean something a little different. Because what, what Paul says in verse 6 here is that he's saying, what is the flesh? It's the things that lead to death. It's the things that are marked with disintegration, not integration, despair, not hope. The flesh is something that says, you are worth something, therefore I'm targeting you so that you don't know the life that's offered for you. The flesh and the spirit are in tension and are opposed to one another. And just kind of to zoom out from Romans 8 into the whole story, we need to have acknowledge really how severe this is, how big of a deal this is. In, in Romans 8, uh, verse 7, it says this. It says, For the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. God, flesh, hostile. Hostile to God. And if we go to the very first book of the Bible, the third chapter, when we see that Adam and Eve have fallen. They've eaten the fruit and they've been deceived by the serpent, God says, and kind of tells them how life is going to be now. The fall and sin has entered the world. And then God gives us one glimpse of hope. It's called the first gospel, the first, the, the proto-euangelion. And he says, here's how you know I will win the story, is three, Genesis 3.15. But in it, he says, Satan, here's what's a reality for you now. I will cause hostility between you, Satan, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring and he will strike your head and you will crush uh, you will he will you will strike his heel both Romans 8 7 Genesis 3 15 use the word hostility and it's the same word so the thing that Paul is talking about is not a new issue 
It's not a modern issue. It's one that we see from the third chapter of the Bible. To be human is to know hostility. It's the water we swim in. And actually, to be human is to know that we long to deem what we see as the good life. Because it's the very thing that brought Genesis 3 into the picture, the fall of mankind into the picture. And here's what I mean. What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that? Did he really say? This inciting question that questions the goodness of God. And therefore, they ate the apple, they ate the fruit, whatever fruit it was, it was appealing to the eye. Because to them, they thought, he's holding out on me. So I need to go get what I want because he won't give it to me. And we see it all through the rest of the Bible of marked with hostility, we search for the good life. One small example is later on in the Old Testament, Solomon is the son of David. And Solomon has been tasked with uh, to carry on the kingdom that David has ruled over. And it goes really great, and then it goes really bad. And in this greatness, he's built the temple that, that people have longed for. He has um, built up all this wealth. He is so rich, richy rich. And he has uh, all of these um, kind of uh, this army and this power and this kingdom. And in 2 Chronicles 1, an Old Testament book, it says that God, this kind of this genie in the bottle moment where God says, ask me anything and I'll give it to you, Solomon. And Solomon says, I want a heart of discernment, of understanding. And God says, it's good that you asked for that. You could have asked for anything, this, 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 but you asked for a heart of understanding. And as he's marked with a heart of understanding and he goes and lives a life marked with 700 wives, 300 concubines, read between the lines, Thank you for the laugh. He's marked with a huge kingdom of power. He pins the words of Ecclesiastes. And if you don't know what Ecclesiastes is, it is the wet blanket of the Old Testament. It will suck the fun out of the room. Because he says in the opening words, the words of the teacher, son of David, Solomon, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, something is new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. And no one remembers the former generations, even those yet to come, will not be remembered by those who follow them. Let's say amen, let's go home. Glass half empty to say least. And yet Solomon had everything that we would deem as the good life, wealth, power, prestige, and pleasure. And what does he say when he looks as with a heart of understanding at his own life and at the world? Meaningless. Meaningless. And with that reality in mind, meaningless, searching for the good life that we deem Paul writes the words of Romans 8. And he says, set five times. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit and what the Spirit desires, not what the flesh desires. Don't set your mind on the things that the flesh wants. He's saying, set, set, set. Place your 
allegiance and affection on something, the spirit, not the flesh. Arrange your life around the desires of the spirit, not the flesh. Set, set, set. He's saying set your desires. And desire is often um, a dirty word, right? It, it, it feel a, kind of an, an oh, you gotta take a bath after you talk about desire. Because we think of desire and passion and when in fact, actually, it's a beautiful word. Because to understand the tension of the flesh and the spirit, we have to understand who we are as a people of desire. Because you are someone who desires something. And desire did not come after Genesis 3. It was before it. And Kurt Thompson, who's a, who's a psychologist uh, and kind of looks at spiritual formation, he says this in his book, The Soul of Desire. He says uh, the desire is defined as this, as our experience of this entire collective convergence of what we sense, imagine, think, feel, think, and are primed to do behaviorally that amounts to what we want. And what we want then is a complex constellation of experiences, sensations, and impulses, all of which are continually trying to make sense. The process of making sense of what we sense is fundamental to how we humans, unique among living creatures, develop into storytellers. Listen to this. It is desire that evil exploited, inserting shame in its place, yet desire is the very substance of our created being to which God is calling. For truly, it's a thin line that separates longing for beauty and goodness from our exploitation of them. Because sin is in the world, in your life, and in my life, it does not mean desire cease, nor does it throw desire out the window. But actually, this conversation of flesh and spirit actually talks about how you're worth something. And it longs to invite you into something that says, when you give your desires to the uh, spirit, you will know the good life, the model of the good life giving it to the spirit. Now, we're all in the same struggle, flesh versus spirit, but we're all different because we all have this, like he said, the the constellation of convergence of all these things that make up who we are. That you're the only person in the universe that is you. So while yes, you are in the same struggle as the person to your left and to your right, you are unique in a way. And so my question with that in mind is, What is your desire? What do you want? Because you want something. Because when you begin to ask that question, you begin to see, wait, there is that thin line. And actually, oftentimes, I I move toward the flesh, this, this exploitation of desire, not the beautiful fulfillment of it. What do you desire? Because maybe a a good diagnostic question is for you, where do you feel the weight of Solomon's words? Meaningless, meaningless. Because I guarantee you that probably attests to the fact that something has been exploited that is beautiful. Or where do you feel the the words of Paul in Romans 7 at the very end? I I don't do what I'm supposed to do. What I do, I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man that I am. I can't make sense of myself. I'm a walking contradiction. What beautiful desire has been exploited there? And what we know is that as we live in this hostility, we can know that's the starting place. 
while you shouldn't stay in the hostility, you should actually realize the fact that you feel something is good. It's saying I'm, the Lord's calling you into something deeper, into the spirits. He doesn't say our desires are bad. He says, I long for your desires to be fulfilled and set in, in the spirit. And so if that's the model of the good life, what's the manner of the good life? Second idea, the manner of the good life. And I say manner meaning how does it actually happen? If this is the good life, if it involves the spirit, how do we land the plane in our lives? And he says in the model, those, 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 in, in the 9 to 11 verses, he says, you, you, you. Because there is therefore now no condemnation, this is a reality. Nine and on. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In May, years and years and years ago, my wife and I got married. And we were young, and we were in love, and we're still both those things. But, but um, we moved into our new apartment as newlyweds, and it was 900 square feet, and it was a basement apartment, and we were in love, and we had nothing, but it was our basement apartment. And six months later, we had some roommates move in my mother-in-law, and my father-in-law. Let's just sit in that for a few more minutes. <laughs> I hit the jackpot of mother-in-law and father-in-law, so it's okay. But, but as um, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law moved in with us into our 900-square-foot apartment that, that soon became a 200-square-foot apartment, uh, what the reality was is that whatever they did, I did. Right? The tight quarters made it so that if they watched something on TV, I watched something on TV. If they made breakfast, I had to smell the breakfast they made, and vice versa. And yet, even as we lived uh, with each other, leaving Cleve didn't really apply, I guess, um, but as we lived with each other, there was also this new intimacy that was born. And my fondness and appreciation of them skyrocketed. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. Here in verses 9 to 11, Paul is saying the Spirit is, resides in you. It dwells in you. The Spirit is in you if you belong to Christ. And what the Spirit does in the close quarters of you, the human heart is that you don't begin to avoid it and kind of live around it. You begin to live with it in mind. And the life of the Spirit is you living with the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in mind because it's in you. This fondness, this intimacy, this connection, all because the Spirit resides in you. And the Spirit does its best work in the human heart. So what is the work of the Spirit? What is the Spirit so great at? John 14 to 16, if you want some reading, go read it. it. It's Jesus telling his closest disciples, this is what the Spirit is like. This is what the Spirit will do. This is, I'm, I'm crazy about the Spirit and the Spirit's crazy about me. Because the Spirit's number one job is to be the president of the Jesus fan club. 
to say, look what the Savior did. Look what the Son of God did. And me, as the Spirit of God, I'm, I get the, the, the beautiful pleasure to now apply that in your life. Everything that has been purchased, there is therefore now no condemnation. It's a reality for you because I'm here as the Spirit. The Spirit is there to make sure you know for a fact you are beloved. And you are your beloved's. The story of the Bible is not a story of rules or fables. The story of the Bible is this tale that is true, of the truest truths. And it says this, that a Trinitarian God has set his sights on loving the antagonist, you and I. That it will move heaven and earth, literally, to make sure that is known and accomplished and also applied to you. The Spirit moves toward you, even as we don't move towards it. And a song by the Avett Brothers titled A Ballad of Love and Hate, we see love and hate personified. And we see what it looks like. And in the beginning of the song and the end of the song are awfully different. And it tells us how love moves toward this personified version of hate. And it begins like this. Love writes a letter and sends it to hate. My vacation's ending. I'm coming home late. The weather was fine and the ocean was, was great, and I can't wait to see you again. Hate reads the letter and throws it away. No one here cares if you go or you stay. I barely even noticed that you were away. I'll see you or I won't, whatever. The middle of the song is is hate bitterly existing in the world, drinking alone on the hood of his car late into the night. Meanwhile, love has flown all the way to hate, gone to their home, and waiting for this drunken friend to get home. And as love waits in the kitchen, it says this. It says, love has been waiting, patient and kind, just wanting a phone call or some kind of sign. The one that she cares for who's out of his mind will make it back safe to her arms. Hate stumbles forward and leans in the door, weary head hung down, eyes to the floor. Love, I'm sorry. She says, what for? I'm yours and that's it, whatever. I should not have been gone for so long. I'm yours and that's it forever. You're mine and that's it forever. It's just a song. But isn't it a beautiful thing to know that love personified moves toward you to the point where it atrophies your resistance to it. And friends, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does when the risen Christ comes and gives the Spirit to his people, what does it do? It atrophies our resistance to it. To the point where we get to walk in the door knowing it's been waiting for us and saying, you've always been there for me. And and you're mine, and that's it forever. And I'm yours, and that's it forever. Verse 11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
The beauty of the fact is that the spirit of this God who raised Jesus from the dead, the place you and I ought to have been, says, I'm committed to you. I'm dwelling in you. And I will do my best work in you. And actually, just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit get involved in your life, you can know they want your holiness more than you do. They want your wholeness more than you do. They want your freedom more than you want your freedom. And they want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to be a part of your life more than you and I do. And the beautiful story of the gospel is that the king of all things has said, I'm yours and that's it forever and you're mine and that's it forever. What does the uncondemned life look like? It looks like this. The words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is just the beginning, just the doorway into it. And everything after that's the good life in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I don't think I'm alone. Um, when It's so hard to receive the good news of the fact that you are so for me and so for us. And it's hard to receive it because, Lord, I still feel condemned. So may the words of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus wash over us so that then we can say the Spirit is for us and we will be changed. And God, you will do a work in us that we don't even want, but we will find life in because there is only life in you. And this very day, remind us of that truth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. And God, you will do a work in us that we don't even want, but we will find life in because there is only life in you. And this very day, remind us of that truth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.